Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I'm going to ask you to swing this, but you don't get the hammer. You can, swing, no. you can do the closing, okay? Yes, sir. Okay. Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. The club is online at commonwealthclub.org as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I'm Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism at the Hoover Institution. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. As most of you are well aware, Mr. Christie served as the 55th Governor of New Jersey from 2010 to 2018. You do off your elections in Jersey, Yes, we do. During which time he also chaired the Republican Governors Association. Prior to serving as Governor, Chris Christie was the U.S. Attorney for New Jersey from 2002 to 2008, after he'd been a local county prosecutor, which means that while the Sopranos were on TV, you were... Going after real-life Soprano. i got a good story about that if you want later on. <laughs> we'll get to it. Since stepping down as governor of New Jersey, he's led the president's Opioid and Drug Abuse Commission. He's also a contributor to ABC News. You're a pundit. Yes, I am. Okay. It's great. You give opinions, you're not held accountable for them. It's really good. <laughs> well, Governor Christie, on that note, welcome to the San Francisco Bay Area. Thank you, sir. So let me begin this with a very humble apology. I didn't bring any tequila. Wow. Well, you're not Stephen Colbert, but I'm glad that, uh, you know. Tell the audience what well, happened last week. Uh, last Tuesday night, um, I was the, the main guest on uh, the Stephen Colbert show, um, which is amazing in and of itself, um, given Mr. Colbert's political um, persuasions that we were wound up on the same <laughs> show together. And during the pre-interview, and they do those, they pre-interview you, I, I – I said to them, you know, one of the things that I find disturbing about the show is that I've seen that Stephen drinks every once in a while on the show, but he offers drinks only to attractive actresses. <laughs> and I said, you know, in this Me Too era, I think it's really unfortunate that he does that. And I was just trying to have a little fun with him. Well, I got out onto the stage that night and I looked down in between my chair and his desk and I saw two large double shot glasses. And a, a bottle of brown liquid that I didn't, couldn't identify because I couldn't see the label. <laughs> and into the second question of the evening, um, Stephen put the bottle of tequila up on the table and the two double shot glasses. And uh, he said, "I'm gonna, it's, it's okay with you. You're going to drink liberal tequila. It was George Clooney's company. Um, <laughs> Casamigos, yes. And I wound up having three double shots of tequila. <laughs> He had three single shots. I had three double shots. And, uh, uh, you know, for, for those who know me, I'm not a big drinker. So three double shots of tequila. My wife was in the audience going, he's going to be a handful to deal with tonight. <laughs> so they quickly got me out of the studio after the show. I didn't embarrass myself and got me to dinner so I get something to eat and kind of cut the alcohol effect a little bit. So. <laughs> No, no tequila tonight, but probably good for both of us, actually. Yes, we should note your wife is in the front row here. Yes, my wife Mary Pat is here. Yes. So how much tequila would it take for you to move to Virginia and run for governor? <laughs> there may be a vacancy. Right. Listen, right now, not much. Um, <laughs> looks, looks like a layup to me. I, you know, <laughs> listen, as long, as long as you've avoided a few hot topics, you're probably going to be a pretty good candidate. Okay, do we have to go look at your yearbook or anything? Yeah, no, my yearbook's <laughs> fine. Yeah, yeah, nothing. <laughs> Maybe an embarrassing note to my ex-girlfriend. Other than that, there's, there's really nothing there. There is a serious issue with this, and that's really what constitutes a hanging offense in this day and age. Mm -hmm. And if you did something stupid, 
in a photograph 35 years ago, should you be bounced? And we went through this with, with Kavanaugh in the hearings. We're going through this now with Governor Northam, and we'll be going through this with the Attorney General of Virginia. What, what's your line for really what's a hanging offense? You know, it's, it's such a moving target now. I mean, my line would be, you know, stuff that you did when you were in, you know, high school or college should really kind of be off limits. I mean, I think if, uh, thank God, and Mary Pat and I went to college together, and I think we both agree, thank God these did not exist uh, when we were in college, or else I probably wouldn't be governor of New Jersey. Um, you know, so I do think that some of that stuff is, it should, be, should be excused as, you know, growing up. You know, people make mistakes, and, and I don't – here's a problem I have, you know, with Governor Northam. I, it's less the conduct itself from 30-plus years ago than it is his conduct today right. in not being able to come to grips with it. Like, first he says it is him in the picture. Then he says it's not him in the picture. Then he says he don't remember putting the picture on. I mean, that's where people – I think that's the hanging offense. Mm-hmm. I think the hanging offense is not telling the truth about it. And, of course, we've all done things that we're embarrassed by. We all have. But I don't think that um, that in and of itself, um, you know, should be – if it happens way back when you're a kid, I think there should be some latitude given. But I don't think that that's the general opinion today, Bill. I think the general opinion today is anything you've done at any time in your life – Mary Pat and I were talking about this walking through the airport today, you know, that – um, that's why new people like we, like Howard Schultz is just getting hammered, right? Now today there's a story on Howard Schultz um, about the different investments that he has right. and how those different investments are somehow suspect, not that they're illegal, just that, well, they're not really politically correct. You know, I, we, we were saying to each other, like nobody – everyone wonders why the same people run over and over again because right. we've been vetted, <laughs> right? Like we've gone through it already, right? So – but, like, if you're Howard Schultz today, you're going to be saying to yourself, what the hell was I thinking? Like, why did I ever lift my head on this? Well, I mean, it's just been a disaster from, you know, the minute he got started talking about it. And I think that we're holding people to a new standard now, which is going to, I think, lead us to getting um, ultimately some very vapid people. Um, people with no life experience who are, <laughs> you just, you know, they're just a, an empty vessel. Right. And... That may seem fine during a campaign, but boy, let me tell you, once you get in these jobs, you better be able to take the heat. You better be able to make decisions. You better have some life experiences that teaches you, teach you how to bounce back when you get knocked down because you're going to get knocked down. And, I, and I'm concerned that we're going to elect a whole new crew of people here uh, because of this PC standard that we have. Um, now, I don't approve of what those pictures, they're awful. Um, but we also have to decide what is the statute of limitations? What is a time when you are allowed to have a youthful indiscretion um, and still have people say, okay, let's look at the totality of your life since then with Governor Northam, for instance, and is there any indication that Governor Northam is a racist in all the years since then? I don't know. I haven't followed his career well, you know, closely enough to know, but you know, I think those are questions that should be asked before we decide that we're going to just, as he said himself um, the other day, brand him a racist for life. And that's a pretty tough tag to wear. So we're in San Francisco. I'm going to have to ask the obligatory San Francisco question. Sure. Why would Ralph Northam hang whereas Donald Trump walks? Well, because he is a different political phenomenon than anything we've ever seen in this country. And, and I think the reason for that is where he came from. Yeah, but he's been forgiven some pretty tawdry stuff. Oh, you're not kidding. I mean. (laughs) And you probably know more than most uh, most average people do. Uh, Read the book. Um, So, (laughs) um, 
but we had no expectations for him. That's what it comes down to, is we had no expectations for him. He came into a race on his third wife. Mm-hmm. He came into his race with a history of infidelity. He came into the race with a history of having bankrupt companies. He came into the race um, with a history of leaking to page six in the New York Post. He came into the race with all of those things, and the voters didn't care. They just didn't care. And and the reason I believe they didn't care was because they were so angry with Washington, Mm D.C. They were so angry with the typical uh, Washington establishment that they just wanted someone to go in there and wreck the place. And they thought, hey, look at him. I bet you could wreck the place. And, and, um, and, I, and I, I think that's what it was. I mean, Mary Pat tells a great story of when she was campaigning for me door to door in New Hampshire. And she had this happened at multiple doors. And she would go up to a door and introduce herself and say, I'm, I'm married to Governor Christie. Oh, gosh, we love your husband. He's so smart and articulate blunt, direct. We love it. I mean, we're voting for Trump, but we love your husband and, <laughs> and, we, and we hope that Trump makes him vice president or attorney general. And Mary Pat would say, well, wait a second. If you love Chris and you think he's smart and he's articulate and he's blunt and he's direct, why aren't you voting for him? She goes, oh dear, we, we don't need another politician. Mm. 2016 was a year where if you had a title attached to your name, it was disqualifying. And if you think about the Republican primary, the people who rose beside Donald Trump temporarily right. were almost exclusively people without a title. Ben Carson rose for a while. Carly Fiorina rose for a while. Mm-hmm. You did not have people who had titles who, who, who got traction. And I think as a result, Trump is given a pass you know, in, in the main on things that no other politician would be. I mean, listen, when he said John McCain was not a hero because he got captured— I remember Mary Pat and I were, we were just back from Iowa ourselves. We were standing in our kitchen and the phone rang. You remember this. I mean, 15 minutes after he said it, the phone rang and it was Jeb. And Jeb said to me, all right, listen, he's out. (laughs) This is going to come down to me and you. And let's, let's decide, let's be civil to each other, Chris. Okay. Let's not have this thing get out of control. Whoever wins, wins. You're my friend. I'm your friend. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's done. That's it, right? I mean, I get off the phone. Jeff and I are like talking about what the rest of the campaign is going to look like because he can't possibly survive saying that the guy who spent six years in the Hanoi Hilton being tortured was not a hero because he got captured. And, and then add every one of the things on after that that happened, and it just didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why no expectations, no one expected anything of him. And as a result, when he didn't give them certain standards that they've been used to in other politicians, they went, well, it's Donald. Did you watch a speech last night? I did. What worked and what didn't? I think most of it worked, actually. I, I, he, listen, you know what it looked like to me? It looked like there were two speeches. Right? He had two drafts and he couldn't figure out which one to give. The The conciliatory unifying one mm-hmm. or the combative one. Right. So he finally said, I'll give both. And that's what you gave about 80 minutes. It yeah, and it, was a, it was the longest State of the Union speech in history. It was an hour and 20 minutes. And, and I think he decided to give both. And right. so I think a lot worked. Again, for the same thing we talked about before, that mm-hmm. 
in the mainstream media, the expectations for him are so low that if he comes in and gives a speech like he gave last night, you see the reviews you're getting today. And by the way, CBS did a poll that said that 82% of independents said they, they liked the speech. So, you know, this is a dangerous thing to say on either coast. <laughs> so I, wanna, I want all of you just to relax. <laughs> but what you saw last night is the reason why he's the favorite for re-election. Because he has the ability to do that. The question is going to be, will he be disciplined enough for a long enough period of time to do it? Because when 82% of independents like what he said last night, let me tell you something, it's over. It's over. If he gets anywhere near that in a general election, it will be over. So I think the speech worked really well for him last night. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and the, the, the best evidence of that is I was on ABC giving commentary afterwards. And, you know, some of my colleagues were like Donna Brazil, who I love. You know, she was struggling to find something bad to say. Right. Like, well, you know. He didn't really react in the way I thought he'd react to certain things. I'm like, really? That's the worst thing you can say about Trump on a night? That's a, that's a great night for Trump. So I, I think the speech worked really well. When he talks about the things that he's accomplished um, in, in so far in the term, um, he's much better than when he starts talking about and riffing about a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. So it's so simple if he could just stick – to the message. If you could, uh, could just talk about the economy, just yeah. talk about mm-hmm. you know, how things are working and not get into the sideshow, into the freak show. Right. But you and I both know that by the end of the week, he might have done it by now, he is going to tweet something. He's going to go off the, he's going to flip and he's going to say something about Michael Cohen, who I think is on the Hill on Friday. He'll say something personal about somebody and we'll be distracted again. Sure. Why, why can't he discipline himself? <laughs> I know, read the book. Read the book. <laughs> Read the book is the guy who was tasked often with disciplining him. I mean, there's a number of different stories in the book when he was going after Judge Curiel during the Trump University stuff, um, and they couldn't get him to stop. You know, Ivanka called me and said, you have to come over and talk to him and convince him to stop. Right. And I did. He said he was a Latino judge and biased against him. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, and I was like, listen, this makes no sense. Why are we doing this? Let's assume for sake of argument you're right. I don't think you are, but let's assume you are. How is this advancing the ball to winning? And our job is to win. It's not to, like, just have fun. It's to win. So you have to stop it. And and we wrote a statement for him to put out, Mm -hmm. and the statement apologized. And also the statement um, said, I'm not going to discuss this anymore. I'm going to leave it to my lawyers. And he did. Fast forward to the cons. And the Gold Star family who spoke at, at the Democratic National Convention and listen, they went after him pretty hard, and he didn't like it. He was offended by it, so he went started going after them. And finally, Jared Kushner called me and said, um, you know, he won't listen to any of us. Would you please come and talk to him about it? And it's a funny part of the book where I, I walk into his office unannounced, and uh, he looks up, and he said, what do you want today? <laughs> and I said, so I'm confused about something, and I came here because I'm confused, and I know that you'll be able to clear up the confusion for me. He said, sure, sit down. And I said, are we running against the cons? Like, did they substitute the cons in for Hillary Clinton when I wasn't looking? Because if so, we got to change the entire approach of the campaign. And he looked at me and said, so you're going to be a wise ass today. And I said, no. But if we don't focus on Hillary Clinton and stop talking about the cons, you're not going to win. And one other thing, 
These people gave their son's life for the country. And because they did, they're allowed to be unfair to you. They're allowed to be unfair to me. They're allowed to be unfair to whoever they want. Because you didn't give Donnie or Eric or Barron for the country, and I didn't give Andrew or Patrick. And if we had, we would feel like we had the right to say anything we wanted about anything. Because we gave the ultimate sacrifice, which was not our own lives. Parents know this. Our own life is not the ultimate sacrifice. It's the life of our child. And he listened. So there are times he can do it, but, you know, he also doesn't like it. He's also a 72-year-old guy. He's a 72-year-old guy. Saying. I've said that before. I have women come up to me in the supermarket <laughs> say to me, you still friends with the president? I go, yeah. You talk to him all the time. I do. Tell him to stop tweeting. <laughs> so in the produce section, I, <laughs> I put my hand on their shoulder and I say, ma'am, can I ask you a question? And I said, do you have anybody in your life who is 72 years old? And invariably, they'll say yes. And, I said, and let's take away fame, fortune, and the title, which I assume that person doesn't have. How good are you at getting that person to stop doing something that they like doing that they think works for them? And they'll look at me and go, oh, no, they don't do that. I go, now, add that his name is Donald Trump. He's worth a few billion dollars, and he's president of the United States. He thinks this works for him. He's not changing He's not changing. And when I hear people say that stuff, I think, who did they think they were voting for? Going back to our original point. Right. Like, it's not like he acted like a demure, reserved guy during the campaign. <laughs> and everyone's now seeing him going, oh, my God, this guy changed. He's that's, that's who we voted for. That's who he was. And one of the strengths he has with working class people in this country is they believe he doesn't pretend to be somebody he isn't which is what they think of a lot of politicians. And they're willing to forgive a lot of stuff that he does because they go, well, that's him, and at least he's, he's, he's being authentic. So I think that's you know the, the counterweight to the common sense logic, Bill, of what you're saying, mm -hmm. and that I've said to him many times is he gets pulled in the other direction because he wants to do it, and he gets some positive reinforcement by having him, call, having him called authentic. So who in that White House reinforces the dark side? <laughs> Who are the enablers? Read the book. Um, <laughs> no, listen. I, there I are less people. There are less people in the White House now that reinforce the dark side than there was in the beginning. The beginning was a circus, and and it was a circus because they dismissed a, a very carefully planned out transition that I put together with another hundred and forty people. Um, didn't have threw it out. Literally threw it in the garbage. Thirty binders worth of preparation that it took six months to put together. And, you know, guys like Reince Priebus, Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner, um, and, I mean, think about this for a second. Omarosa was in the White House. <laughs> Omarosa was in the White House. Let's just take a moment. She right, wrote, so... She wrote a book. She, yeah, she wrote a book. Crazy book. She wrote a book. I mean, so now I think that the biggest problem the president has now is that there isn't anyone in there pushing either way. Mm -hmm. There's John Kelly was there for a long time pushing in one direction. Gary Cohn, to some extent, pushing in one direction. You know, to some extent, Larry Kudlow tries, I think, to 
to do some things that are positive in that way and push the president in a, in a pushing in a, him on trade and on trade, trade and other issues in a, in, a, in a way that might be a little bit more constructive. But in the end, um, this is a family business. So it's it's being him, run as a family business. It's him and Junior and Ivanka and your good friend Jared. Yeah, and even we'll get to Jared. And even Junior and Eric really are not involved. I mean, Junior and Eric are really running the company up in New York. Uh-huh. They don't spend much time at all in Washington. Um, and from talking to them, you know, they don't spend a lot of time when they're with their father talking about business, meaning government business. Right. They, they, you know, don't do that because they get so little time with them. They're talking about the stuff that fathers and sons normally talk about. So it's really Jared and Ivanka, um, Melania, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, the other folks there are, are minor players beneath those. Okay, and who's he had in his orbit of friends? You've, you've known him since about 2003? 2002. Right, so you tell the story in the book. You meet him in 2002. You go out to dinner. He orders for you. He does. That's the classic sign of a bad date, is it not? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I first met him. I, I, the reason that I was having dinner with him was because his sister is a Third Circuit Court of Appeals judge. Mm-hmm. And I was the brand new U.S. attorney, and I went to visit with her just to pay a courtesy call on her. And at the end of our, our meeting, she said, can you do me a favor? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. And she said, would you go out to dinner with my little brother? And I said, you mean Donald? And she said, yeah, my little brother Donald. And I said, sure, just have him call me. She goes, no. And this is the part you really won't believe. She said, no, he thinks it might be inappropriate for him to call you. And I'm like, thinking to myself now, like that must have been the last time Donald Trump ever thought anything was inappropriate, right? <laughs> um, and she said, can I arrange it with your secretary? I said, of course, Your Honor, you know, no problem. So we go out to this dinner at John George in New York, a very fancy French restaurant in his hotel that's up on Central Park. And, you know, you walk in and there was a huge round table in the center of the room, like it could fit 10 people, right under the chandelier, right? And it was set for two. <laughs> and I walk in and I'm like, uh-oh. And they, they walk me over, and it was the first time, I think, the only time that I ever beat him someplace. He's, he's you know, maniacally early for meetings. And so I came in and sat down, and then in walked Donald Trump. And he, we shook hands, and it was literally the first time we met, sat down. Have you ever been here before? And I said, no, no, uh, Donald, I've never been here before. Get John, he says to the waiter, get John George out here. So out comes John George. From the kitchen. Yes, Mr. Trump. He said, John George, meet my friend Chris. Nice to meet you, sir. Great, good. Okay. Remember that appetizer you made me the other night, the special one you made me? We'll take two of those. And remember the entree, the entree that you did with it? We'll take two of those. And he said, yes, sir, Mr. Trump. And he walks away. And it was like, it took me about a five beat to figure out he just ordered for me. Right. (laughs) So I looked at him. I said, did you just order for me? He said, you're going to love it. Don't worry about it. Okay, so we, he starts, I, I was going to say we start talking, but that wasn't really it. He starts talking. So he starts talking, and anybody who goes out to dinner with Donald Trump, this is pre-presidency. Right. It's a monologue. And he goes through the monologue. Out they come, and it's one of those really fancy places where they come out, and the food is plated with a silver top on top, and then they present it to you, right? And I look down, and it's scallops. And I am allergic. <laughs> So I'm kind of cutting them up and moving them around the plate. And, and, and he's not noticing because he's talking. He's talking. Right. So he didn't really notice. So that gets cleared away. And then out comes the main course. They take it off. It's lamb. 
and I detest lamb. <laughs> and I mean like dry heave kind of detest, right? <laughs> so now I'm like, oh, so I'm cutting the stuff and, and I decided I have to eat a little of it because like, now you got to be polite, right? I hear my wife's voice in my head. Be polite. <laughs> be polite. All right, so I take a bite of it. He finally notices. He says, you're not eating it. Is it not cooked the way you like it? And I said, no, no, it's cooked fine. And he said, well, do you not like it? I said, to be honest, I hate lamb. And he goes, I swear to you, he looked at me, he goes, why'd you order it? <laughs> okay, so in retrospect, in retrospect, shouldn't this have been a warning sign? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it should have been a warning sign. You're absolutely right, Bill. It should have been a warning sign to me. But the best part of the story is when we leave. So we leave and we, and we walk out and, and you are right on Central Park, right across the street from Central Park. And there were two people outside, man and woman, obviously tourists. It's May of 02. They're dressed like tourists. They look like tourists. They're looking up at the buildings, right? And they see Trump. Oh, Mr. Trump, the woman comes up. Mr. Trump, my husband is such a fan of yours. And we've been waiting out here for an hour because we heard you were inside. Could he please take a picture with you? Now, you have to know, Trump hated, before he became a politician, he hated taking those pictures. Hated it. Because he had to shake hands with the person. He didn't like shaking hands with the person. It just... He's a... Yeah, he, he doesn't... He's, he's not a... Right? He's not a big... I don't know if it's a phobe, but it's... He doesn't like germs. Yeah. So... <laughs> he finally goes, okay, come on over. So he puts his arm around the guy. Now, remember, again, we didn't have these in 2002. So she has one of those black and yellow paper disposable cameras and she's pushing the button and it won't click oh man <laughs> and it you know it seemed like 15 seconds it probably wasn't that long but she's pushing pushing, pushing. i'm sorry mr trump i'll get it to work and he i could see he's getting impatient right so he he steps away from the guy and he says sweetheart let's do this next time we get together <laughs> and he turns and gets into his limo and leaves and she looks at me and of course no one knew who i was at that time she looks at me and she said we're never going to get together again. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, I think that's the idea. <laughs> the next morning, I get to my desk. It's 9.01. My secretary comes in and says, Donald Trump on the phone for you. Pick up the phone. Hey, Donald, how are you? Did you have fun at dinner last night? Wasn't it amazing? Didn't we have a great time? I love it. We got to do it again. We got to do it again soon. I'm like, ah, yep, sure, yep, up. And he goes, and by the way, how about that line with that woman? Was that beautiful or what? <laughs> totally donald trump he's also he's also advised you on neckwear yes well that was happened during the presidential campaign um uh, i was on what he called trump force one and uh, and he has a bedroom on trump force one the 757 he flies yes that he flies around with with trump and gold letters on the side of it and um of course and he he's back we're getting ready to land in uh, little rock arkansas to do a rally and and he goes back to his bedroom to put his tie on so I hear him yell, Chris, come here. So I get up from my seat and I walk back to the bedroom and he's in front of the, the mirror putting his tie on. And he goes, retie your tie. And I said, why? And he said, I, it's got to be longer. It's not long enough. And I said, no, I, I like my tie this length. This way I wear my tie. And he goes, Chris, retie the tie. And I said, no, I'm not retying the tie. And he goes, it's slenderizing. Now, I'll point out he's not exactly a 42 long. No, and like, but now you know why his tie's so long. 
like if you look at it, he always has a really long time. That's the philosophy. The philosophy is it's it's slenderizing, and that's what he told me. It would be slenderizing. I'd have to wear like an eight foot tie, I think. <laughs> okay, Hi. but I, you know, yeah. So he did have some advice in that regard. Lots of advice. So you know, we need an egg timer on the stage. It's the uh, the great baseball announcer, uh, Red Barber, used to put an egg timer in front of him, and every time he flipped the egg timer, he'd tell the score of the game. So yeah. he'd be updated. We'll get to the book in a second. <laughs> He's written a book, in case you don't know. <laughs> uh, the hair. We gotta talk. Just the hair. The hair. Quickly, the hair. I listen. I don't know much more than you do. Um, you know, I've I've traveled with him, and and uh, you know, he listen. I can only tell you um, that it's the product of lots of effort. Beyond that, I got nothing to say. <laughs> I got nothing to add. Fortunately for me, I've never been closer to it than that. Well put. Okay, the book. The book. The book, the rather lengthy title, Let Me Finish, Trump the Kushner's Ban in New Jersey and the Power of In-Your-Face Politics. Right. That's, that's the kind of title you give in the Amazon age because people search things by keywords. Right. And I'm telling you, like, to me, the title was supposed to be Let Me Finish. That was it. And then the publisher comes to me and says, well, we'd like to make it a subtitle. I'm like, okay. And they start listing all these names. I'm like, right. what are we doing with the subtitle? They go, no, it, 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 more people find the book. I'm like, okay, sure. So it's true. All those people are in the book and all those things are in the book. But that's why it's that way. So, you, you know, modern put, publishing. You put that man's name on the book and it sells. That kid in the White House who just wrote the 500 Days of Hell in the White House, he got a seven-figure advance for Yes, that. he did. Yes, he did, from what I'm told. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't much in that book. Right. But, but he still gets the check, so he's a happy boy. Almost as much as your advance, right? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> no comment. How dare you? Okay, so let me finish. It's polite to talk about money. Let's pick these off. Let's go in reverse order. Let's, let me finish. New Jersey. Well, Republican governor of a blue state. Yes. Not too many. So the most popular governor in America right now, I think, is Charlie Baker. Right. Charlie Baker, Republican governor in blue Massachusetts. And right on his tail is Larry Hogan, mm-hmm. Republican governor in blue Maryland. Right. Powell yours. Uh, yep. Powell mine. Both of them are. May run, may run for president? I don't think so. We'll get to that. Get that yeah, out. I don't think so. Okay. But not easy being a Republican governor in a blue state. No. No, it's not easy. It's not easy getting elected. And once you get elected, for me, I had a Democratic legislature for all eight years, all 2,920 days. Not that I counted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, but I do think that it teaches you a skill set that is really important to know in today's America. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to make deals. I had to reach compromise or else I'd get nothing done. And, you know, I have a the Democratic Senate president, when I was elected, was the president of the Iron Workers local. The speaker of our of our assembly was an African American woman, single, who was a government worker. I mean, you know, we didn't have a lot of common experience, common life experience, so and not a lot of common philosophy. So you had to build personal relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's the biggest thing that's missing in today's politics is nobody or very few people build personal relationships anymore. Um, governor Tom Kane, one of my predecessors, gave me great advice before I became governor. Um, I, I went to have a series of meetings with him to learn to be governor after I'd been elected. I've been a prosecutor for seven years, and I wasn't sure I really knew exactly how I was supposed to do this. And so I asked Governor Kane to meet with me. And um, we sat down for our first meeting, and he said to me, um, okay, this is the way it's going to work. He said, I'm going to ask you questions. You're going to give me answers. I'm going to critique your answers, and that's the way we're going to learn about what it's like to be governor. Mm-hmm. And I said, great. 
He goes, first question, who's your best friend? And I said, my wife. He goes, not anymore. <laughs> I said, not anymore. And he said, no, your best friend is now going to be Steve Sweeney, the Senate president. He said, you are going to spend every waking minute you can making him your best friend because if he's your friend, you're going to have a successful governorship. And if he's not your friend, you're not. And it was the single best bit of advice I got in eight years. And I worked the next day. I took it so seriously. The next day I said to the troopers, I wasn't governor yet. I was governor elect. I said to the troopers, we're going down to Gloucester County. Now that's in South Jersey near Philadelphia. I'm in North Jersey near New York. It's about a two hour drive. I said, we're going down to Steve Sweeney's district office. They said, well, do you want us to tell him you're coming? I go, no, I don't want you to tell him I'm coming. So I literally, he's, he's got a, a, a district office in a, a strip mall. And I get out of the car, I walk in, and there's the receptionist. And she's like, <laughs> Governor-elect. I said, hi, how you doing? I'm here to see Steve. She said, do you have an appointment? I said, I don't need one. <laughs> and she said, no, you don't. Let me get him. So here comes poor Steve, who was just in there to do some paperwork. And didn't think he was going to be seeing anybody. <laughs> comes out in like a pair of sweatpants and a T-shirt, right? And he's like, uh, Governor-elect, I didn't know you were coming. And I said, yeah, no, I was in the neighborhood. He goes, you live nowhere near here. And I said, well, actually, as it turns out, I came down to see you. We went into his conference room, and long story short, I said to him, listen, we got a decision to make. Are we going to make deals and put touchdowns in the end zone, or are we going to make headlines? I came here today to tell you I want to make deals and I want to put touchdowns in the end zone. And I want you to think about whether you want the same thing. Because if you do, I'll work with you to make that happen. And for eight years, he was... Um, my best ally in the Democratic Party. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, New Jersey politics worked for eight years because even in divided government, there was never a time when Steve and I couldn't talk to each other, except for one time when I line items to vetoed some uh, money in the budget that he didn't want me to line item veto. And I didn't give him a heads up about it, which was my fault. Right. So that I did that on a Friday. Sunday morning, I go down to the end of the driveway to get the newspaper. Now, he hadn't called me or anything, and I got no calls from the press, so I thought everything was fine. (laughs) I opened up the Sunday newspaper, the Newark Star-Ledger, the biggest newspaper in the state, and on the front page, in font this big, it says, Sweeney colon, Christy a prick. (laughs) Quote around prick. Subheadline, Subheadline was, says he wants to punch Gov in the head. And I looked at this, I was like, what? So I'm walking up the driveway and I'm thinking to myself, this is, what do I do with this? So I call him and he won't answer the phone. He won't answer the phone. Won't talk to me. And so that lasted for about 10 days, I think, or so. And then I had an asthma attack. I have asthma. And the only time during my governorship I had an asthma attack, it was a 98 degree day. I was doing a farmland preservation event and my allergies were bad and I had an asthma attack and they took me to the hospital. And it became kind of a cause celeb, you know, Sanjay Gupta on CNN saying, he could have a pulmonary embolism. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm laying on the gurney going, it's not a pulmonary embolism. It's an asthma attack, Sanjay. So 
you know, press outside the troopers, Mary, poor Mary Pat's in at the dentist, in the dentist chair, and the troopers come rushing in to the dentist's office and pull her out of the chair. The governor's in the hospital. You need to come immediately. They're rushing her into the hospital. The camera's outside, the whole thing. I'm laying on the gurney. I'm fine. They gave me some adrenaline. Uh, they gave me some oxygen. And, and I, after a couple hours, I was fine. But my phone rings, and it's Steve Sweeney. Of course, I'm in the hospital. He thinks there's no chance I'm answering the phone, right? I'm, right. I have a pulmonary embolism. How can I answer the phone? <laughs> so I answer the phone. I go, hello. And there's quiet on the phone. He goes, governor? And I said, yeah, Steve. And he said, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine. He goes, I mean, seriously, I'm mad at you, but I don't want you to die. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. And he said, tomorrow let's have lunch and i said sounds good and that was the only time during eight years that steve and i had a period where we didn't speak and then luckily i got sick um and it and it guilted him into actually talking to me again and <laughs> everything went right back on, on beam so new jersey worked that way we did a lot of i think really great things there that you can read about in the book but um the biggest thing i think we accomplished was to show people that divided government can work if people want to be reasonable with each other listen to each other and become friends and and I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being friends with Democrats. You know, if I wasn't friends with Democrats, I'd be eating dinner alone a lot in New Jersey. I can guarantee you that. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So if I'd been sitting on this stage in 2011, well, it would have been a different part of San Francisco, and we were talking about the next year's primaries, I would have said, watch out for Chris Christie. He is a governor. He's doing a lot in New Jersey. Republicans love governors. And it's a pretty weak field. It's Mitt Romney and Newt Gingrich and Mike Huckabee and what other people jockeying for yeah. you know, talk radio remember, jobs or whatever. Right? Yeah. And you didn't run. I did not. So any regrets? Um, no, I don't have any regrets, although I, I made the decision based upon what now looks like a completely antiquated idea, which was I, I didn't think I was experienced enough to be president. <laughs> Mary Pat will tell you, I mean, in the end, I looked at her and I'd been governor for 15 months. And I said to her, I'm not ready to be president. I, I, I'm just learning how to be governor. Like, I can't go and ask people for their money and ask them for their vote. I mean, the only thing worse than running and losing would be running and winning at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and I catch the garbage truck, and what the heck do I do with it? And I, and I legitimately, Bill, really felt like, and I mean, I had all kinds of people, important people, smart people. And I came out during 2011 to Hoover, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and uh, they got me in a room with George Schultz and Condi Rice. And they both said to me, you have to run. I'm like, you guys don't even know me. Like, I have to run. Like, I, I, I know me. I'm not ready. So I don't have any regrets. I understood the opportunity, believe me, because you would have been right. I was the hottest thing in the world. I went to the Reagan Library in 2011. That was right before I made the decision. Mm-hmm. Standing ovations. Woman in the balcony famously, like, begging me to run on behalf of her children and her grandchildren and crying. And, right. I mean, it was crazy. And and my wife looking petrified in the front row that I might actually just declare right there. Um, you know, it, it was in a level of intensity that was nuts. We, we went to a meeting at the Racket Club in New York City that Ken Langone put together where he lied to me and said to me, 
I got a couple of people want to have breakfast with you just to talk to you about this. I walked in. There were 40 billionaires in the room. 40. And two chairs at the front for me and Langone. And Langone got them up one at a time for them to tell me why I had to run for president. And the last person who got up. Now, here's me, Mary Pat, two of my political aides, and our oldest son. Who at the time, Andrew was 18 years old and a freshman at Princeton. And... The last person that gets up is Henry Kissinger, who helps himself up with his cane and takes two steps towards me. And he says, Governor, I have known eight presidents, and there is one indispensable quality to a successful president, and that is courage and character. You have both. Your country needs you. And he sat down. And Langone turned to me and said, Governor, the floor is yours. And this will tell you a little bit about me. I stood up and I said, listen, I'm not running. I said, I appreciate all this and we'll go back and we'll think about everything you said. And I appreciate all that you have said to me today. And I'm flattered and so is Mary Pat, but I don't want to mislead you. I will go back and rethink it, but I am, I am almost positive that I'm not going to do it. And because in my heart, I don't believe I'm ready and I have no business doing this if I don't have absolute confidence that I'm ready to serve. And so we went back, we talked about it for another couple of days, and then I held a press conference where it seemed like every media person in the world showed up, and I said, I'm not running. Um, and so I know the political opportunity was there. I would have beaten Mitt Romney in the primary. I don't have any doubt about that in my mind. I would have beaten him. It would have been an incredible contrast, believe me, between me and Mitt. Um, <laughs> uh, and if I don't know if I would have beaten Barack Obama. I, I think that President Obama is a unique historical figure mm -hmm. and a very good politician. Um, someone I, I created some Twitter storm the other day when I said it would have been a jump ball. Right. Uh, it was a jump ball with Romney, right? So it certainly would have been a jump ball with me. And I got all these haters on Twitter, which is like the hate network, right? <laughs> nobody, nobody who is nice is on Twitter all the time. <laughs> have you noticed that? It's like only people who just really hate, they're really angry. And I have all these people on Twitter saying, you're delusional, you're crazy, you're comparing yourself to Barack Obama. No. I'm merely saying that if I'd been the Republican nominee and he had a jump ball close race with Mitt Romney, he, he would have known he was in a fight with me. He didn't know he was in a fight with Mitt. Mitt had one night where he made Obama a little bit uncomfortable the first debate. I would have made Obama uncomfortable every day. I might not have beaten him, but I would have made him uncomfortable every day, and it would have been a fight. But in the end, you can't do that to yourself in terms of second-guessing, Bill. Because right. in the end, I didn't believe I was ready, and my guess is that because of that, I wouldn't have been as good a candidate as I could have been once I was really put to the test. So, yeah, no regrets. Right. So Romney seriously vetted you for vice president. Yes, he did. Trump? considers you for vice president i was down to the last two with trump okay so this is a good segue into at least two of the gentlemen on the on the cover of this yep. kushner and banner here's what i don't understand how can you be in donald trump's immediate orbit have a good relationship with him when these two people do not like you especially jared kushner and this is a good opportunity to explain why you and jared kushner have a challenged relationship well let me just say this is why jared kushner doesn't like me i don't i don't have a challenged relationship with jared kushner at all i don't i could care less and I, I was doing a job. I was the U.S. attorney, as Bill told you in the introduction, from uh, for seven years, from 2002 through the end of 2008. And in the middle of that time, around 2004, 
Um, we were investigating a matter involving Charles Kushner, Jared's father, who was one of the wealthiest men in New Jersey at the time, real estate developer. And we were investigating him for tax fraud and for federal election fraud for uh, forging the signatures of other partners on campaign contributions in order to be able to donate more money himself. And uh, we were in the midst of that investigation. It's a family-owned business, the Kushner companies. His brother and his sister were both partners with him. And they were coming in. We called them in to ask them questions about what was going on with the tax treatment of certain things. When Charles found out that his sister had been into the office to give information, he hired a prostitute to go after his sister's husband. The prostitute seduced his sister's husband. They videotaped it with a private investigator. And then months later, when she was getting ready to give her next bit of testimony, he had the tape mailed to her at her home on the day of her son's engagement party in order to intimidate her from testifying any further. And when that happened, the sister came to see me and said, she gave me the tape with the husband. Imagine that meeting. <laughs> just want you to take for a moment. I want you husbands out there for a moment <laughs> to put yourself in the shoes of Bill's shoulder, who had done this thing, had it captured on videotape, delivered to his wife, and now he's being brought in to see the United States attorney to explain how all this happened by his wife. You guys take a moment and just relax with that. <laughs> so she says to me, my brother did this. I said, Esther, I mean, how do you know that Charles did this? And she looked at me, she said, Chris, Charlie plays on people's weaknesses. She puts her hand on her husband's shoulder and she says, Billy has a weakness. Charlie played on it. So in the midst of him telling that story, Bill Shoulder telling me the story, he had said that he had, they had exchanged cell phone numbers, he and the prostitute. He, of course, he didn't know she was a prostitute. He thought she was just a woman who was attracted to him. Um, told another story, too. Right. Because he also sent that person after his bookkeeper, who he thought was giving us information on the tax stuff. And that guy said no to her twice. And when I interviewed him, I said, how is it? Because he's a very attractive woman. I said, how is it that you resisted her twice? He goes, because I knew something was up. And I said, how did you know something was up? He goes, how? Chris, I have a mirror. <laughs> Apparently, Billy did not. Um, and so he gave us this. He still had the cell phone number. So the, the videotape was date and time stamped. Right. So we looked at the prostitute's cell phone records immediately after he left the, the hotel room where they had taped her. Who did she call first? She called the number of a private investigator in Schenectady, New York. Okay, who did he call next? He next called an East Orange police officer who provided off-duty security to the Kushner companies. Who did he call next? Charles Kushner. That's called the easiest case you ever made in your life. Right. And so he was charged with witness tampering. And three weeks after he was charged with all the tax counts and the FEC counts and the witness tampering, he pled guilty to 18 counts. Pled guilty. 
This is the richest man or one of the richest men in New Jersey. He had hired Ben Brofman, the most famous criminal defense attorney in New York City. And he didn't fight it for longer than three weeks. What's it tell you? Guilty. And he knew it. So he went to jail for 24 months. And fast forward to a number of years later, and Donald Trump calls and tells Mary Pat and, and that he wants Mary Pat and I to go out to dinner with him. We got to dinner with he and Melania, and he says, listen, I got some news to share. I said, sure, what's up? And he goes, great news, Ivanka's getting married. And I said, oh, that's fabulous, Donald. Congratulations, he gets champagne. We toast each other. I said, who's she marrying? He said, Jared Kushner. Hmm. <laughs> And this just tells you that Donald never does anything without a reason because he said to me, you prosecuted his father. And I said, I did. He goes, I need to know everything. She's marrying into this family. Right. And I said, well, I'll tell you everything that's public, but the stuff that's not public, I can't tell you. He looked at me, he goes, why not? I'll keep a secret. I go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so Charles was not in charge of the bachelor party, was he? I, I don't, had no idea because I was not invited to the bachelor party. Um, but they got married. And then subsequently, obviously, uh, when Donald ran for president and I lost and then endorsed him, um, I wound up having to deal directly with Jared Kushner, who I'd never met until the meeting that's detailed in the book in the chapter that's called Jared's Meltdown. And, um, and you read that chapter and, and put that into context that it's the first time we, I had ever met him. And to this day, I've never met Charles Kushner. I saw him in court three times, the day of his arraignment, the day of his plea, and the day of his sentencing. And it's not like I was going up to exchange pleasantries. And I've never, I've never met him to this day. And in the book, in that meeting when Trump was making me transition chairman and Jared came into the meeting uninvited, interrupted the meeting and tried to talk Trump out of making me transition chairman because I was untrustworthy because I had prosecuted his father in what was he called a family matter that should have been handled by the family and the rabbis. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, uh, I, I was sitting there just listening to this and Trump being Trump and being completely blindsided by this and not knowing what to do at one point suggested, wait a second, we can straighten all this out. The four of us should go out to dinner. <laughs> and Jared, in one of the only moments that Jared and I had in that entire time that was simpatico, Jared looked at him and said, who? And he said, me and Chris, you and your dad. And Jared said, oh, I don't think my dad's ready to go out to dinner with the governor. Yeah. <laughs> and Trump goes, big mistake, big mistake. We could straighten this whole thing out if we all just went out, had dinner together, I could fix the whole thing. Um, and, you know, Interestingly, Trump said, no, I'm going to make you chairman of the transition. He told Jared, I don't care about this. Chris was doing his job. He did what he had to do. You would have done the same thing. I'm making you chairman of the transition. The next day, Jared called me and asked me if I was next time I was in the city to come see him. So I did. And he said to me, listen, I want to put all this behind us. Um, the most important thing is getting Donald elected president. He trusts you. Um, and so I want to work with you. Um, and I took him at face value and said, okay. Uh, and then the rest happened. So one day you're running the transition effort and one day you're not. Correct. In fact, at the most important time to run the transition effort, which is after the election. Um, so I run the transition effort from May to November, which is now required by federal law, by the way. Right. Um, you have to do you have to start the transition in the May of the year that you're running for president. Because right, in the book, you say Trump was really just. Oh, he didn't, didn't want, want to do this. Oh, he didn't want it. He was a like, bad karma, bad karma. 
I haven't been elected to anything yet. Bad karma. And But he had to do it legally, and I explained that to him. But then two days after the election, I had run my second transition meeting. Steve Bannon called me in after the meeting, said, hey, I need to talk about a couple of things. Can you come to my office? I said, sure. I walked in the office. He closed the door. He said, hey, I just want to let you know we're going to make some changes. I'm like, great. What changes do you want to make? He goes, you. <laughs> I said, excuse me? He said, you're fired. He said, and we don't want you back in the building again. And I said to him, well, that's fine. Okay. I said, I get it. I'm a big boy, and I understand this business works. Whose decision was this? And he said, well, it doesn't really matter. We just expect you to comply. And I said, well, you don't know me very well. I said, so here's what I'm going to do, okay? You're not going to tell me who it is? I said, then I'm going to tell everybody it was your decision. I said, I'm going to tell them why it was your decision. And that scrum downstairs in the lobby at Trump Tower, they're about to get the best press conference they've had in a long time. And wait for your phone to blow up, and I hope you have a good week. And I get up to leave. And he looks at me and he says, no, no, come back here and sit down. I said, no, 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 just sit down. I'm done. I got to get out of the building. So I'll see you later. And he said to me, come here and I'll tell you. And I said, okay. And he said, it's the kid. He's been taking an ax to your head ever since I got here with the boss. Ancient bitterness. He said, he told me to do it. And um, that was that. So and by the way, fired everybody that I had brought in. Right. Including guys like Mike Rogers, the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. And, and fascinatingly, they initially fired David Malpass, who I'd brought in to run economic policy. And David, today, was named president of the World Bank. Right. So he survived. David survived. Okay, so this gets back to my question. I mean, he, he screwed you over. He kicked you off that transition committee. He did. Why do you still hang out with him? Who, Trump? Trump. Listen, we have one president at a time. And the fact of the matter is that if you think that you can help to make your country better, then I believe you need to put personal things aside if you can, and you need to do it. And, and I, I don't, you know, I don't feel like personal vanity um, needs can be placed in front of the needs of the country. And I, so when he needs help, I help him. When I disagree with him, I disagree with him. And, you know, for those of you who see me, you know, on television for ABC, when I don't agree with stuff he does, I say it. In the book, when I disagree with stuff he's done and decisions he's made, I say it. And I'm one of those people, since I've been friends with him for 17 years, that can say it. And, and, um, and he takes it, interestingly. You know, like he'll call, like if I do something on ABC that he doesn't like, you know, like I'll be in the car on the way back to New Jersey and the phone will ring and it'll be like no caller ID. I'm like, oh, I know who this is. You know? <laughs> Answer the phone, it's like the White House switchboard. Uh, is this Governor Christie? Yes. Please hold for the president. You know, you know now here we go. You know, and he'll let me have it for something I said that morning that he disagreed with, and I'll give it back to him. And then he'll say, he'll always, when he doesn't like something I'll say, he'll always say at the end, you know, you're very, very hard on me. You're very hard on me. And I'm like, and I always say the same thing back to him. Someone has to be. (laughs) He laughs, and then we get off the phone. So he hangs out with Kanye West. What if he did a Kanye and he dropped the mic and told America he's not going to run for re-election? What would happen? Yeah. Well, first of all, do you think he could trick us all and not run for re-election? Or do you think he's in? I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. I mean, I think he wants the affirmation of a second term. I think that's consistent with his personality. Just to prove that I can do this. Everybody says I'm not going to win, so I'm going to run to prove the prove Right. And win. also that, like you said, I couldn't do this job. And now the American people said they want me to keep doing it. Right. I think that's even more of it. Um, now, he wants to be affirmed as the president. 
And I, so I listen, anything can happen because he is Donald. And, you know, he could decide one day to go, you know what? I don't want to deal with these people anymore. And I'm out of here. And he'd give a speech where he would say something like, I've accomplished more in three years than any president has accomplished except for Abraham Lincoln. And uh-huh. <laughs> I have nothing left to do. So I'm going back to New York and I'm going to build more buildings and blah, blah, blah. And, he would, and he'd just leave. But I think that's like a 2% chance. I, I think he's in. I think he's ready to go. I think he wants to run again. I think he sees what he considers on the other side a weak and disjointed field that will be killing each other for the next year plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he sees a real lane for him to win. So I think he probably runs. Okay. Um, but if he did decide not to run, how long before you'd go to New Hampshire? Not long. Just to test the waters. <laughs> not, not long, I suspect. I mean, listen, you know, if you've run for president, the opposite of what happened in 2012, right? When, when you get to 2015 and 16 and you decide in your heart that you're ready and that you want to do it, and then you go through the process, which is a bone-numbing, god-awful process to run for president in this country. Um, where you're turned into like half circus act, half beggar. You're constantly begging people for money. And then when you're not begging people for money, you're trying to get attention. It's an awful process, but it's the only process we have. And so you go through it. Once you go through that, um, I think it's hard if you don't win to ever get it out of your mind. Um, because every decision that's made, every situation that happens, you think, what would I do? What would I do? How would I handle that? And I, so, yeah, I think about it. But, you know, the, I'm also not the kind of guy who's going to run for the heck of it, given what I just told you. Mm-hmm. I'd have to see a pathway to victory. And if I saw one, I'd probably run. If I didn't see one, then I wouldn't. My wife has, like, got her arms folded. <laughs> She's staring down. She's like, I hope the next Mrs. Christie really enjoys the campaign. Yeah, you, uh, you do not have to be an expert in body language to understand that pose. Yeah, you saw that, right? <laughs> that pose turns from, I love my husband to you, son of a bitch, you. You know, like that. Think, right? Like, just like that. It was really the quick. The picture in her separate bedrooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, let me say something. That would be the least that would happen to me, Bill, <laughs> if this happened. I think it would be a, a full eviction. We've got about 10 minutes left, so let's do a few audience sure. questions. You ready? Yep. Okay, you're a former prosecutor. Yes, sir. Uh, president says last night, uh, what if his phrase, peace and legislate, not war and investigate? Right. So how do you feel about him saying that? And along with that, what do you think about the Mueller investigation? Well, see, I don't think he was talking about the Mueller investigation. He was talking about the he was talking about congressional investigations, right? right? So mm-hmm. I think what he was trying to do was put a marker down with the, with the Democrats in the House to say, listen, I'll take some of this, but you get out of control, then I'm just not going to deal with you. That's an approach. Right. I mean, I think they're going to do it anyway. They've been dying to do it, and they're going to do it, and we'll see how he reacts to that. But I think I don't think that was an inappropriate marker to put down. Now, separately, on the Mueller investigation, two years. Yeah, listen, you appoint a special counsel. It's going to mark down two year minimum, two year minimum for any special counsel because they got they feel like they got to get something. Right. It's not like you're the attorney general where there's a lot of other stuff to do. You're the special counsel. Your only thing to do is to prosecute someone. And as many people as you possibly can to justify it. Now, I know Bob Mueller. I worked with Bob Mueller for seven years when I was U.S. attorney. I have great faith and confidence in him. I think he's a man of honesty and integrity. And I think he'll do the job the right way. 
Um, and I, but I also don't believe, since we're on the topic of investigations, that the Mueller investigation is the one that the president should really be worried about. The one he should be worried about is in the Southern District of New York, because there they have two tour guides, Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, and Rick Gates, the former executive director of the inaugural, and Paul Manafort's partner. I can tell you from doing the job, the job's a lot easier when you have a tour guide. A lot easier. That's the one he should be worried about, not Mueller. Okay. Um, question. What do you think of Cory Booker? Listen, I, I, Corey and I have a great relationship with friends. So I start off by telling you that um, we, are, we are legitimate friends, and we've been friends now for 15 years. Um, he's been to our home. Uh, we've gone out with him socially. Um, I like Cory Booker. Now, we don't agree on a lot. I mean, philosophically, we don't agree on a lot, and we agree on even less now because Corey's kind of like taking a, what I would call a crazy left turn. Now, remember, this is a guy who used to be pro-school voucher, right. pro-charter school, you know, tough on crime, mayor of Newark, pro-tax incentive, business development, uh, the guy who, who talked Mark Zuckerberg out of $100 million because he told Mark, I am committed to school choice. Now, you know, he's gone way left. I think that's in reaction to where the energy in the Democratic Party is and his desire to be elected president. So, you know, I like Corey a great deal. You'll never hear me say a bad word about him. I will disagree with him on issues where we disagree. But he is a good man. He has a good heart. He is in this for the right reasons. This is not about money for Cory Booker. This is not about fame. He really believes in what he, you know, what he wants to try to do and that he has something to offer the country. So we need more people like Cory, not less. I don't know whether he can win the nomination or not, but I'll always have good things to say about Cory. He's a good man. Who would you like to see? Who would you like to see Trump run against? If you look at the current Democratic field, if you could pick a candidate. Oh, yeah. Easy. Elizabeth Warren. Bring her on. <laughs> Bring her on, bring her on, bring her on. Okay. End it today. Give it to Elizabeth. Uh, that'll be that. And if you throw Howard Schultz in as an independent, then we don't even have to campaign. It'll be over. But bring on Elizabeth Warren. Just what the nation needs. A Harvard law professor who says that she's an American Indian because she's one 1,024th American Indian. I mean, seriously, this woman, like, really, she should do everybody a favor. Honestly, go away. <laughs> go back to the Senate. No one will bother you there. You're one of 100. You can give your speeches, do your thing. But if you run for president, God, man, I told Mary Pat, I want to write a check. Let's go. <laughs> go, Elizabeth, go. <laughs> That's it. Make okay. it happen. Question. As a two-term Republican governor of a blue state, what advice do you have for the output in parentheses forlorn California Republicans? There is hope. But remember this. Everything starts with a candidate. You know, um, if I didn't run for governor in 2009 and some other Republican had, I doubt they would have won. It matters who the candidate is. Consultants matter, demographics matter, money matters. That all matters. But there's nothing that matters more than the candidate. What the California Republican Party has to find 
is a fearless person who is willing to call the Democrats in this state out on the things that he or she believes is causing harm to the state without any hesitation, without any type of mealy-mouthed, politically correct BS. Because what the hell do you have to lose? No one expects you to win anyway. (laughs) So go there and just do it. And that's the way I ran against John Corzine. Remember, I'm in a state that hasn't elected a Republican to the United States Senate since 1972. We have the longest streak of any state in America. This is a very blue state. And I ran against a guy who was a Goldman Sachs guy who outspent me three to one. Be fearless and stand for what you stand for. I'm pro-life in a state where 60% of the voters are pro-choice. I didn't say, well, I'm kind of pro-life, but not really. I said, I'm pro-life. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. And if you disagree with me and it's the only issue you care about, then vote for the other guy. But I can't believe it's the only issue you care about. I think that's the kind of candor you need to have with people because they respect you then. Okay. Unfortunately, we reached the point in our program where there's time for one last question. And since you've been such a great uh, guest today, I'm going to give you a softball. Okay. What do you want your legacy to be? Uh, you know, actually, I, let's qualify that by how many more chapters do you want to add to it? Well, listen, I'm 56 years old, so I hardly think it's time for me to you know put my feet up um, and not do anything anymore. Now, I don't know. If that means I'm going to be in public life, you know, so my, my poor wife's down there just going, God, please let it end. Um, body language is still rough. Yeah, the body language <laughs> is very rough. You can see it. I, I, but I don't know how many more chapters are going to be added. I hope there'll be plenty. And whether that's in public life or in private life or in the media or however it turns out, I can't imagine myself being quiet. Right? <laughs> I think that's a fair thing to say. So I think there'll be other ones. When I, when I think about, uh, about legacy, I think there's two ways to look at legacy. One is the things you've achieved uh, in your public life. And for that, I just leave it to whoever will write the history of what I've done. And, and they'll be certainly much more objective than the media is today. Um, and I, I'm counting on that. And I don't want to be alive when it happens, quite frankly, because if I am treated more objectively, it'll be such an exciting moment for me that I might not be able to contain myself. So I, 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 that's the first part. This, the second part, though, about legacy, it seems to me the much more important part is personal. You know, I said recently to the president, he offered me Secretary of Homeland Security recently. And I said no, because I didn't want the job. And... He said, why not? And I said, well, I'm not really interested in the job. And I already have plenty of titles, sir. I've been governor, I've been U.S. attorney, and I'm husband, father, and son. I don't need more titles. And I think that that's what legacy is really about, is, you know, those last three. You know, if if when I go... Um, and I think the, the saddest thing about it for me would be that I'm going to miss my own funeral because I'd really love to be there <laughs> to hear what people have to say about me. Um, but I hope, I hope that what happens is that I'll have a representative of those three things all there to speak. 
someone to speak to what kind of husband I was, someone to speak to what kind of father I was, and someone to speak to what kind of son I was. Because in the end, that's the stuff that matters the most. I got pension reform passed. Okay, great. Right? I, you know, I passed eight balanced budgets in a row. I, you know, appointed conservatives to the court. I, okay, oh, I, I got it. And if I'm in New Hampshire in 2020 or 2024, I'll be rolling them all out for you. <laughs> but in the end, legacy is about what you leave to the people that love you. And what I want to leave to the people that love me are good memories of, of my role in each one of those three things. That people who knew me as a son will remember me as somebody who was a good son to a really good mother and father. And that as a husband, that I was someone who was first and foremost tolerable. <laughs> and then once you reach that threshold as a husband, then you reach for the stars from there. <laughs> and that as a father, I hope that when I go, one of my children will speak at my funeral and tell everybody who's there what it was like to be Chris Christie's son or daughter. And that when they talk about it, I hope they have a smile on their face, that it was a good thing. And that's legacy to me, Bill. Like the rest of it, you know, it just, it matters to me on an ego level, but when you strip it all away, those are the things that are most important. And, um, those are the ones that I hope I got right. And, uh, I got a lot more work to do to make sure I keep it right, but hopefully so far I've gotten it right. This was fun, and I hope you learned to really open up and tell us what's really on your mind. <laughs> Put you on gavel duty here. Our thanks to Governor Chris Christie for joining us today. We also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the Internet. I'm Bill Whalen of the Hoover Institution, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club. Governor, you got the gavel? Yep, I got it, babe. The place where you're in the know is adjourned. Three times. Two? Three times. One more. One more? One more to grow on. Three times. Nobody told me. I didn't get briefed. <laughs> Thank you again, Governor. Thank Christie. you, Bill. Great Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it.